everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Mr. Neil Oliver, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been, uh, I've been aware of you for a while and uh, we had a bit of back and forth trying to organize a chat and here we are. So I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever comes next in the next hour or so. Yes, I'm very excited to have you here as well. Um, you're, yeah, just by way of quick introduction before we get into it, you are an author and an archaeologist. Um, and I discovered you on Twitter, actually, some of your YouTube takes talking about history and philosophy of money uh, went a bit viral. Uh, and I think you just have an excellent job of delivering really big ideas in a palatable, accessible form. Uh, and I think that's extremely important. You know, this is not, this is not an uncomplicated area. So it's very important that we decomplexify it for people. Um, so do you want to give maybe just a little bit of background about yourself and, and maybe tell me a bit how you got, a, got to be talking about these philosophical takes on money? How I got myself into this mess, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, you introduced me as a, an archaeologist and author. I studied archaeology at Glasgow University a long time ago and, and worked as an archaeologist and excavator for a few years. I retrained then as a journalist, uh, worked in newspapers for a few years. Then I joined... Um, uh, BT, British Telecom, because they were about to create the third website in Britain. 
uh, there was a there were three there were two websites in Britain in the mid nineties Royal Bank of Scotland and Tesco a supermarket and BT were going to have the third and I was brought in as part of the team uh, to you know to early days of of uh, of, of BT.com. Um, did that for a while and then I, I stumbled into television and I, I spent oh about fifteen or so years maybe more making history and archaeology documentaries here in the UK. More recently, I was also making television in Australia and in New Zealand. Uh, I then, when the whole uh, COVID adventure began, lockdown and the rest, uh, I was I had been approached by a, a talk radio show and a, 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 a radio journalist called Mike Graham here in the UK, and he and I started talking on air every Wednesday about the plight, the state of the nation, the the, the mess we were in. Um, then GB News, which is a brand new, or it's a year and a half old now, uh, uh, news uh, channel in the UK started up and I was asked to be part of the beginning of that, right right from the beginning. And I, I leapt at the chance uh, because it was a, a, a channel that was advertising itself as being all about freedom of speech, that it would be a broad church uh, and that people from all ends of the political spectrum, all points of view would be welcome on that channel and you could get the opportunity to air your views, uh, you know, and it has, it has lived up to that expectation as, as far as I'm concerned. And I, 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 I begin each Saturday night show with a, a 10 minute monologue. And I've been doing one every week since uh, June, 2021. So there's quite a few of them out there. And, you know, you've, you've obviously run across some of them because they go out onto social media and YouTube and so on. Uh, and so a whole new uh, cohort of, of an audience has become aware of me. You know, people that, you know, if they weren't interested in archaeology, history documentaries, they might not have come across me. Uh, but this, this foray into current affairs uh, has given me a different, has given me uh, access to a different audience. And so here I am. I, ne I never intended to be a contrarian. Uh, I, I never intended to be a, you know, a lightning rod for opinion. Uh, but just by, I suppose, just because I was standing up and giving my point of view, that has made me a controversial figure to some extent. And um, here I am. <laughs> I just keep, I just keep going with that at the moment. So it's interesting how we we fall onto these things. Um, and yeah, the it's it all is also funny that not funny, kind of concerning, I guess that to just speak the truth or even ask questions sometimes can now cause you to be deemed controversial which is i don't know uh, i'm reminded of maybe it was hg wells the further a society drifts from the truth the more it hates those who speak it yes um, it's, but, but yes I've, I've heard that quote i think you're right i think it is uh hg wells but I, I think in any event it's been revelatory to me the last couple of years i i should probably i mean i i became quite controversial back in 2014 because there was a referendum here in the uk about whether or not scotland uh, should break away and become an independent country break out of the the united kingdom uh and i i spoke out about that and said no that i thought scotland should remain that the united kingdom should remain intact i thought it was the better option and that that was a believe it or believe it not that was a very controversial thing to say at that time so I became a controversial figure for some people. It's a bit of a niche, but I became very controversial for some people back in 2014. Uh, but so it did. It did 
that experience prepared me for, for what started to unfold as soon as I started speaking out about lockdowns uh, and, and the damage that was being done to kids and the, the damage that was being done to society and the damage that was being done to the economy. And then, you know, my, my stance on vaccines, you know, I, I didn't, haven't taken the vaccine and, and I'm not going to take the vaccine. And that, all of that, you know, renewed or, or upgraded my, my, my controversial reputation during the last couple of years but it has been a revelation to me that for a lot of the time it started out for me just wanting to ask questions I wanted when it came to things like lockdown I really just wanted to say is this the best idea won't there be consequences if you shut a country if you shut down an economy like the UK for two years what are going to be the consequences of that but even asking the questions uh, was was uh, heresy and the, and the whole the whole the whole thing took on a religiosity. The, the whole thing felt like a religion. You know, that uh, the, the, the National Health Service here in the UK was like the church that had to be protected and defended. You know, never mind the congregation, just protect the institution of the church. And the priestly role was taken by the preferred scientists that were deemed to have all the answers and to be in control of the science and the consensus, which, of course... There should never be in science. That, sh that should be anathema to science. Right. Uh, and and then there was then there were the heretics. You know, you know, people that, that asked questions and spoke out were, were demonised to the point where you know they were almost to be burned at the stake. Uh, and then there was the communion wine of the vaccines that you know that people had to take and had to be seen to take. So that religiosity frightened me. It became cult-like. Uh, and it was a revelation, you know, the, the way in which it, it sorted out people that agreed with, well, the people who were on the same page as me, and we found ourselves very isolated from that outspoken majority that had control of the mainstream media, uh, that had the backing of the state and the government and the judiciary and the civil service, you know, all the, all the forces were ranged against those of us, the, the relative few who were saying, hold on a minute, I, is this definitely the best idea? And, and are these medical procedures definitely safe? Have you got the data? And, and all of that. But the, one of the words that keeps going round and round in my head all the time is revelation. The experience of all of this has been revelatory for me. Yeah, it has been quite the same for me. Um, and speaking of really good questions, um, one of your most recent monologues, I guess, from one of these programs was a 10-minute session on where does money come from um yes. and you you make this great point that you know it it really is just born from thin air uh loaned into existence by bankers yes and yeah i mean for my shame I, I'm, I'm embarrassed about it that i mm. that i that i'd lived this long you know and i i paid this many bills and you know and kept up with a mortgage and you know and, and bought cars and, and lived my life and it, it, it had barely crossed my mind to wonder what money was what it actually was it just seemed to be some ubiquitous entity that had always been and would always be there and I'm embarrassed and ashamed that I, I hadn't bothered to ask the questions of the world what is money? What is wealth? And then so relatively recently, I just started, it was almost like, it was all, you know, that feeling you get sometimes you think I have actually always known this. I just didn't realize that I knew it. Yeah, right. it, it was an, it was an amorphous thought in my head, but now suddenly I've got the vocabulary that enables me to, 
to give a recognizable shape of the thought I've always had and to, and to express it and get it out there. I think I'd been maybe subconsciously aware of some of it, but just hadn't been able to articulate the thought or I hadn't bothered to articulate the thought. You know, and then I, you know, I came to that, re, that grim realization that, that the only thing that is created uh, out, of, out of thin air uh, by man is money. You know, everything else is a transformation. Right. You know, you take a raw material or a resource and you make it into something else or you combine things to make a third or whatever. The only thing that man creates out of thin air is money. And it was in, in our part, in my part of the world, you know, the Bank of England was established in 1694. And from the get-go, it, it was in the paperwork that the, the, the bankers would benefit from the interest uh, accruing from money that was made out of thin air. It, it's not, it wasn't a secret. It was the, the bankers knew what they were doing and they were just so that when you, well, you know all this, but it was a revelation to me that when you go to the bank and you borrow a hundred thousand pounds to buy a house, they don't, they don't go into a drawer and take out a hundred thousand pounds and hand it. They just go, yeah, you've got a hundred thousand pounds, but that money doesn't exist until you pay it back. It's, it's only when you pay it back with monstrous amounts of interest that it actually takes on a tangible form. The bank doesn't lend you anything. It just Somebody just presses some buttons on a keyboard and that money spontaneously exists. And I thought, my God, why have I not paid attention to the heinous fraud that is fiat money? I mean, it's a criminal fraud. <laughs> I realize, yes. you know, we're, we're being run by the Sopranos. <laughs> you know, except they wear pinstripe suits and they give themselves fancy job titles, but it's a it's a criminal enterprise yes. that, that is out there. Fiat money. It's an absolute fiction. And if uh, you or I tried to do anything remotely like it, we'd, our, we'd be in jail so fast our feet wouldn't touch the ground. That's right. And it is, speaking of revelation, I think a major revelation for, I mean, I've been down this journey. I see many people going through this experience, especially as they get into Bitcoin, the US dollar is the most desired asset in the world, pretty much today. I mean, I guess you could you could argue for gold perhaps, but in general, most people are chasing dollars, at least right now. The revelation that the US dollar is in fact a pyramid scheme can be quite shocking, right? The most desired yeah. asset in the world is the largest criminal network that's ever existed. I mean, and now, you're, and now your president has, has signed in another, has signed another executive order, 14,000 and whatever executive order, um, which is, which creates the, the digital dollar or, or empowers the Fed to, to, to press the buttons and bring into existence the, you know, the, the central bank digital currency for the U S you know, so that, that's, that's, that's simmering there, you know, just ready to be, you know, just ready to be brought to the boil at whatever moment the, you know, the Bank for International Settlement or wherever deems it to be the right time. You know, that, that, that is, that's coming. Uh, and that's, you know, if the, if the Ponzi scheme, the pyramid scheme of, of fiat money was frightening, the, 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 mm. the yoke of oppression that is made possible by the advent of central bank digital currencies is the end of the world as we know it. Yes. Yes. It is 
truly a, a Orwellian dystopian it, it's type a technology. Thing. I can't, yeah. and, 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 and it's still a relative handful of people that are that are running about banging on the windows and shouting about it. Well, well, the mass of the population seem to care not a jot. And I don't think they're going to care until the money they had on Friday is transformed into programmable food tokens by the Monday. Mm, right. And at that point, they might actually ask their first question, like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Right? It's like, um, obviously, working on education in this space hopefully making some degree of difference. But one of the realizations or maybe even revelations I've had is no matter what I or any educator in the world can do, we can never hold a candle to people feeling the pain directly, right? When you finally get your bank account seized or assets frozen or whatever social engineering tactic Mm -hmm. uh, inflicted upon you through a central bank digital currency, that will be the moment the masses will wake up and say, Oh, wait, this doesn't work. Um, And it, you know, on the nature people of money, think, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't feel too bad if I were you that you have never thought about this because it seems to me like most of us never thought about this. No. Um, we look. I always like to analogize this to glasses. You know, we're looking through money all the time. You know, we're we're negotiating, we're planning, we're we're thinking about our own profit and loss statement, our own balance sheet, what we can buy, what we can do. We're performing economic calculation through money all the time. But very rarely do people take off those glasses and examine the glasses themselves and say, what are, what is this that I'm looking at the world through? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to your point on work, yes, work is necessary to do any, to create anything of value in the world, right? The world has given us a lot of resources, but we have to conduct work on those resources to transform them into something useful. That's what the economy is doing. Now that's true. And every industry, every commodity, every domain, yet we've ripped it out of money, right? There is no transformation. There used to be, right? We used to mine gold, we'd refine it, we'd uh, make it into coins or bars, and you know, we would transact in it. But now it's just money, at least in the US, it's an SQL database maintained at the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Control, whatever, control C, control P, add zeros, expand the money supply confiscate real wealth from everyone that's using dollars that is really mind-blowing and, and a, a painful revelation i think yeah i mean I, there's there's certain there's all these little snapshots where you think uh, where you come across these individual snapshots and you think that's breathtaking you know and so the, the 1933 uh, executive order by fdr that made private ownership of gold illegal you think how, excuse me, why, why did people wear that? Why did people accept that? That a commodity that had been, you know, there, accessible to people in private hands for, for however, since the, since, the founding, since the founding fathers and beyond. And one, one Democrat president, by the stroke of a pen, makes it illegal to hold gold in private hands and insists on buying it at $30 an ounce. And then as soon as it's all recovered, puts the price up to $45 an ounce and thereby devalues the dollar by 40%. And, and yeah, what? And then, in, and then in 1971, when, you know, when, was it Jimmy Carter, they come off the gold standard. You come off, you know, you abandon the gold standard. And people, because people are so, because we're not, we're definitely, I mean, this is a side issue, but, 
you know, I've been reading um, uh, Pete Hegseth's uh, Battle for the American Mind about the way in which education, it's not unique to America, but his book is specifically about the way in which education was captured 100, 120 years ago, perhaps, maybe more. Uh, and it was it was stopped from being that which it had been, which was something that was, you know, you know, giving people, uh, you know, the, a, a, a background in, in mathematics and astronomy and, uh, and, you know, the appreciation of beauty and, uh, you know, physics and the rest. And, and, it, and it was it was transmogrified into into an ersatz education, which has dumbed down generations of the population. And the same thing has happened in a diff, with a different backstory, but something similar has happened in the UK. You know, the, the nature of education has changed. And so people don't have the tools to understand. You know, they, they watch they watch money and they watch money markets. You know that legend about it's not even true, but it serves a function. That you know, there's a story that used to be told that when uh, that when Columbus's ships arrived off the coast of America, the 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 the, the Native Americans had no way to conceive of what the ships were, and so just kind of turned away from them, like they were, you know, that they were clouds in the sky. It's it's bogus. That's that's you know, there's no there's no real evidence that that uh, that that. That ever happened or, or that that was the impact but people have been so uh, denied this, the tools the education to enable them properly to appreciate the world around them mm-hmm. that the machinations of the money men and the bankers are it, it, it's invisible you know yeah. you talk about you know you're looking through it people don't have the skills so they don't understand the way in which they're being manipulated and the advantage is being taken of them because we don't educate ourselves to understand this stuff Mm-hmm. Yes, no, I completely agree. And I think in many ways it is by design, right? To just keep a generalized ignorance about oh. economics and money in place that benefits the insiders to the legal monopoly, obviously. Yeah, the, la- the, last, the last thing that the powers that be want are educated, uh, self-confident, independent, fit, healthy people. You know, they want, they want the opposite. They want uneducated, frightened unhealthy dependent populations because they can be manipulated and that's that's what you're seeing now you know there's been a there's a reverse evolution has Mm -hmm. been being driven and and people aren't even aware of it yeah agreed and i i hope that moving into a better incentive system can help resolve some of that i know i don't think we ever fix human nature but we can consciously engineer the incentive structures we inhabit and that seems to to move the needle a little bit um I want to double click on something you said there. You made a great point that obviously you and I could not go out and start a competitor to the US dollar or any other fiat currency. You're immediately thrown in jail or coerced or whatever it is. That's the key problem, really, is that the only way money can be printed out of thin air is if there is a legal monopoly on money production. So there's one monopolist that's given the legal privilege to print money. Everyone else has to bear the cost of that printed money. And, you know, if you can get people to this depth of understanding, it's like, okay, the legal monopoly can only exist if it's preserved by violence. There has to be coercion to protect that legal money monopoly. Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, there's a pyramid scheme. (laughs) Insiders benefit, outsiders uh, get all the costs dumped on them and it's preserved by violence. 
like how much worse of an institution could you imagine? I mean, I, I don't even, I can't think no, of that, a... that is, it's a criminal enterprise. Yes. Everything about it, it would be criminal if those in the know hadn't passed the relevant legislation to right. create the illusion of its being legal. But there's a difference between legal and lawful. Yes. You know, lawful, you know, going all the way back to common law and in, in the UK, going all the way back to Magna Carta in 1215, lawful and, and common law draws upon that which is in all of us, which is a sense of right and wrong. We all, everyone, everyone, every, everyone knows the difference between right and wrong. You know it in your gut, whether you, what path you actually follow, whether you do right or do wrong, that's, that's down to the decisions that each one of us makes every moment of every day. But there's no denying that everyone knows the difference between right and wrong. And once people, ordinary, reasonable people have the reality of fiat money and the operation of the Fed or, or, the, or, the, or the banks, wherever, the central banks explained to them, it will trigger in every reasonable person a sense that that's wrong. The fact that it's legal is neither here nor there. You know, just because something is set down as the law doesn't necessarily make it right. And, and, there, are, and there are instances, there have been instances that we're all aware of down through the centuries in the relatively recent past where the moral action was to break the law to defy the law, right. you know, to, to defy legislation. That was mm -hmm. the moral act because it's right. Mm -hmm. So to do, uh, but, and, and once, you know, once, once people's eyes are, are opened to the way in which these banks operate, you know, another revelation for me re relatively recently was that, you know, 90 odd percent, maybe more than that, maybe closer to hundred percent, of the money flow around the world is coordinated by the Bank for International Settlements, right. about which most people have never heard. Right. And even if they have maybe possibly heard the name, heard the words, Bank for International Settlement, if you then ask that tiny percentage that were aware what that bank did, they wouldn't know. But one way or another, it controls the, the money flow of, of you know, 95% of the, of, the, of the currency around the world. And it's by controlling central banks in 60 or 70 countries around the world, including Russia, including China, England, the Fed in the United States, even in dodgy failed states like Afghanistan and Libya. You know, the Bank for International Settlement has control of the central bank in those, in those locations. And again, that is wrong. That is wrong because those people are not elected they're not answerable. They are. They are. They put each other in place. They they give each other these these positions and these outrageous, egregious powers to control ninety five percent of the world's money supply, and they're unelected and unaccountable private bankers. It's just wrong. Yeah, to the core. Um, I, I'm glad you brought up the Magna Carta. It was signed 1215 by King John. Yeah. And I always go back to that document because that we'd been talking, we'd been playing with these ideas for a long time, but it was really ratified in that document. We, the government's express purpose and its only scope 
to preserve life, liberty, property, right? They even named in, in that document, um, I think it was called inviolable property. And I talk about this a lot on the show that, 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 that framework for government is the entire scope of what you want a government to do. You don't want a government to do anything beyond that, essentially. And inviolable property is an interesting one when you consider that property is the relationship between owner and asset, the, the binding or the wedding between them, right? The, the ability to control an asset. That's basically what property is. We've never had a form of property that's actually impossible to separate from its owner, right? It's always kind of been at the leisure of the state or whoever the security provider is. Um, and in many ways, I think Bitcoin, and we can talk about this later, but I think Bitcoin is the closest technological uh, advance we've ever made towards that ancient principle of inviolable property. And that you can actually, I can hold an asset that no one can do anything about. You can't inflate it. You can't take it as long as I custody it properly. And that is so key to the earlier point you made where the difference between lawful and legal, right? Uh, what did Gandhi say? Civil disobedience becomes our sacred duty when the state becomes corrupt or lawless. If the state is violating life, liberty, or property, which is the only, the the existential, the sole ex- existential reason for the state is to preserve life, liberty, and property. Yeah, then the, to rebel against the state is your sacred duty. What else the, is there to the, do? The common law as enshrined in Magna Carta, and it's, it's, it's worth, no, you're right, 1215, but immediately it was signed. John went crying to the Pope about having been bullied into it. And he, he basically wriggled out of, of 1215. And then, and then you know, there were subsequent versions of, of Magna Carta because right at the beginning, the, 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 the baddies <laughs> sought to try and wriggle away from Magna Carta because they understood how powerful it was. Yeah. But Magna, Magna Carta is still there. If the, if the, it's, part of the, it's the foundation of the British Constitution. And if the, if the powers that be could get rid of it, they would, but they can't. And, and to some extent, the reason that Parliament can't get rid of Magna Carta is because it predates Parliament. There was no Parliament when Magna Carta was signed. Magna Carta drew upon the notion that, um, of the jury the power of the jury, and in its in its original inviolable form, the the jury uh, was the was the manifestation of democracy. That was the that was the power of the people, not you know uh, being exercised in a vote every four or five years. The 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 operation of the jury, the the jury of twelve uh, of your. Uh, of your peers was the way in which uh, democracy was enacted every day. And during the course of a criminal trial, the jury was empowered, any jury was empowered, not just to assess the guilt or innocence of the accused, but to test the justice of the law itself. And the jury originally was empowered to set aside legislation. Legislation is just paperwork. It's not the same as lawful. And where, where there had been previous cases that might be put in front of the jury to enable them better to make a judgment, or if there was case law, if that jury thought that that, that legislation was imperfect, they could just uh, annul it. It was called annulled by jury, annulment by jury. And the, ever, since, ever since 1215, 
governments have sought to get away from Magna Carta because it, it absolutely holds power to account. What mm. you had in Magna Carta was the judgment of a jury. King John had to be judged by a jury of his peers, and his peers were the barons, the most powerful men in the land. And they came together to judge John. And Magna Carta was like the ruling at the end of that, at the end of that case. And it, it, it made John submit to the notion that even he as king was not above the law, that he, like everybody else, was answerable to the law. And that's that therein lies the fundamental power of, of Magna Carta. You know, so I mean we've strayed away from the notion of of money, which I know we're here to talk about, but I think it's it's also important. Well, it's it, it's deeply connected. Sorry, just when you print money, you're violating property. That's the only thing I want to insert there. That printing money is a violation of property. Yes, yes. Um, there's an interesting etymology to property. I think I think it means, um, you know, where where a where a, a a man would 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 lay claim to a territory. You could only uh, legitimately lay claim to that amount of territory that you could look after properly you had to be able to demonstrate that you could that you could maintain it uh defend it and own it properly and it's mm -hmm. from that it's it, this the, the two words properly and property have the same root yes. you know which is you know which is what it, it it makes you wonder about you know bill gates laying claim to 250,000, 260,000 acres of farmland in mm -hmm. the US because, you know, how are you going to defend that, Bill? Mm -hmm. You know, how are you going to look after that properly? Mm -hmm. You know, and if, if people decide that they want to settle on some of your land, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Are you going to call in the army of Bill Gates? You know, it's right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum. Oh, that's an interesting connection to you because that bridges from the world of, let's say, economics with property into the moral territory, right? What is the proper, there's a, there's obviously a subjective value judgment to that word proper, right? Putting it to its highest and best use or mm -hmm. what have you. Um, and the, you know, back on the Magna Carta, the US constitution obviously is the child of the Magna Carta, right? We got life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we really screwed up that third one, <laughs> probably as it relates to just our our idiosyncratic historical thing with slavery and, and whatever else. I don't know. People have made a lot of comments about that, why we did pursuit of happiness rather than property. I haven't dug into it enough. Um, I can, I can, I can possibly chip in a little bit there. Mm. Uh, there, in the, there was an, an enlightenment in Scotland, uh, particularly it was in the middle, in the second half of the 18th century was the Scottish enlightenment. Uh, and you got David Hume, and you got yeah. you know you got Robert Burns, and you got you know uh, you know and all these all these figures, men of genius, mm -hmm. all at the one time. And one of them was Francis Hutcheson, who had the chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow University, I, th I think in in the mid seventeen sixties, and he taught that happiness was not random manna from heaven, you know that that just settled on the lucky few at random, like lottery wins. On the contrary, Hutchison, and he was drawing on older wisdom, but nonetheless, he articulated it very effectively and said that happiness was a collateral benefit of working as hard as you possibly could to improve the lives of others. 
that mm. if you gave all of your effort and strength to improving things for the people around you and your community, you would become, you'd be made happy by that. That so that was so happiness was something to be worked for mm. strenuously and and if you like pursued. And one of Hutchison's students there in his class at that time was uh, John Witherspoon. And John Witherspoon subsequently went out and became the second president of Princeton College at the time, Princeton University now. And obviously Witherspoon is one of the signatories of the, the Declaration of Independence. And there has been speculation that that inclusion of the concept of pursuit of happiness made its way into that those introductory paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence under the influence of John Witherspoon, who had acquired it from his old teacher, Francis Hutchison, back in Glasgow. That's fascinating. I, I was not aware of that. I do appreciate the proof of work element to happiness there, right? To work assiduously yeah. on behalf of others. Yes. I do. I take a little bit of an issue, though. I guess I'm Randian to some extent where I think uh, individuals should also pursue their own self-interest. I mean, that's obviously part of happiness. Like how, how else, if you exclusively pursued other people's self-interest and not your own, you would be damaged yeah, in that yeah, process. Yeah, the, so there's a the balance anal- between the two. Yeah, the, the analogy there is probably, you know, you, you, you put on your own, uh, oxygen mask on the plane before helping others. Right. Probably, exactly. You yeah. know, you have to, you have to put yourself in a position to help. Before you can't you, pour from an before, empty cup, as they say. Before, before you indulge yourself in treating other people to help, you have to make yes. sure that you're all right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Otherwise, you'll just be stumbling about in a yes. you know, in an oxygen-starved state. Exactly. And this is where I, I, I think the work of a guy like um, Murray Rothbard has been so instrumental because he describes that uh, property being that proper limiting principle, right? Pursue your own self-interest up to the limiting principle of other people's property, right? Don't, I should not pursue my own self-interest to the extent that I need to violate someone else's property, right? If I'm hungry, I don't need to go steal from someone. That so would be if, we, if we all follow that normative code, then that produces the most wealth, the most happiness, the most peace. Oh. So um, I want to, okay. That's all super good stuff there. I, on the, the, Lawful versus legal. Just one more thing here. I um, I spoke with a libertarian attorney about this, Stefan Kinsella, and he described there being a very distinct difference between uh, legislation and legal discovery, right? Legislation being much more, it's decreed by fiat, right? Some political authority says this is the law, everyone go follow it. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Um, legal discovery is something much more like common law, right? We've observed these disputes over the grandest spans of human history, and we keep abstracting out principles and ways to resolve these different disputes. And it, it ossifies into law over time. So we're not dictating law, rather, we're discovering it just by observing human mm-hmm. action over the, the broadest time scales. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it seems like life, liberty and property was kind of like the crowning achievement of that process i mean we still have english common law right in the u.s and um but it has been so in the u.s and here and here in the uk it has been papered over yes and papered over and papered over by so many layers of legislation that it has they have sought to obscure the very existence of the common law 
Yes. Because the truth of the matter is that the common law empowers people. It makes it, a, it the bottom line of common law is that the people govern themselves. That's it. Common law says the people govern themselves. Not they don't need government, they don't need kings. The people in a democracy govern themselves. And that's awkward for those that would tell other people what to do. And so they lay down this like laminate layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of legislation in the hope, and they've done it. You know, enough time has passed and enough legislation has been passed that people can't see the common law anymore. It's buried. It's buried under so much bump. Yes. Yeah. It, that papering over, that's such a good analogy too, because we're papering over what is lawful or legally discovered with mm -hmm. what is decreed by fiat, right? So there's some authority declaring a new law to replace the previously discovered law. So it's legislation by fiat, but it's funded by largely by fiat currency, right? You're stealing from people through mm -hmm. these mechanisms that empower the authority to overwrite the law as it was discovered. And that this is, I mean, this is a complicated area, but that seems to be kind of the pernicious trap we're in. And it speaks to this deeper truth that people follow incentives, not laws. That includes lawmakers, right? Lawmakers are in a position to pass whatever law most benefits their own financial, economic, political interest. That, that, that brings you back to why the, the, this, I mean, the system of the trial by jury and the power of the jury that was enshrined in Magna Carta, it was much older. I mean, it was Anglo-Saxon in origin and the Anglo-Saxons didn't invent it. Anglo-Saxons were drawing on, on, uh, on principles and practices coming out of ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, a, there's an enormous long tail in this stuff before it, before it reaches as far as Magna Carta. Perhaps as a, um, okay, as you said earlier, the power of the jury enshrining the principle of democracy, right? To be judged by your peers. Um, I guess this provides a, it's a proper incentive, I guess, right? It's like, it, it's like this. If, if um, I leave my car out in the driveway with the keys in it running, well, maybe someone will come and steal it, right? That would be in their interest. They could steal a car. But if you have a lot of their peers standing around watching, right? If there's a bunch of cameras around, a bunch of people around, it's much less likely to happen. So uh, this might be kind of a rough analogy, but the possibility of being judged by your peers in a democratic setting, I think, holds people more accountable, even in their own private actions, something like that. Um, yes, I mean, well, I mean, you know, central, central to it was that you had to be, you had to be, you have to be judged by a jury of your peers. It has the jury has to be drawn from people who can empathize with the kind of life that you live, you know. So it would be inappropriate for you to be judged by twelve aristocrats. It'd be it, that would be inappropriate because they, right. you know, they haven't walked a mile in your shoes. They can't empathize with your circumstances. So that's why you know it's it's your peers. It's it's those amongst whom you live and who who share a similar lifestyle. And, and have, you know, perhaps similar aspirations and, you know, and the same travails and hardships are, the, are those that are legitimately able to judge you. You know, that is, that is also central to what is enshrined in the concept of the jury. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that there's this communal element of familiarity, right, that 
how could you judge someone if you hadn't walked a mile in their shoes? It's almost a necessary precondition. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Let's pivot back to central banking here. One of the things you talked about on your, your monologue there was the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1913 and how this was done in secret. Uh, this little saga is brilliantly explicated in the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Um, and I think it really speaks to just the nature of this institution that it can't be done out in the sunlight. You know, I think in the United States, we'd actually resisted the implementation of a central banking twice successfully before 1913. Um, and you made this point in the video too, that the Fed's basically a private corporation that exists despite article one of the U S constitution that authorizes Congress to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it was done over Christmas. It was when most of the it was when most of the 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 delegates would have been away on you know been home. They, would have, they wouldn't have been there. I don't think it was. I think it was barely quarried. I think it was barely a legitimate you know gathering of uh, of Congress that was mm-hmm. that, that that allowed that act to go through. Uh, and from that, and then they only they just stuck federal on the front of it to create the the clumsy optical illusion that that the the, peop, the government and therefore the people still had ownership of it, but mm-hmm. they they didn't from that from that moment until now. It's in purely private hands. It's astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. Yeah, astonishing. And then it that key point. It's a private corporation that's profiting exclusively at the expense of the public. So this is what I often describe central banking as a parasite, like a parasitic relationship with the market economy, because it cannot even, as we said earlier, it requires work to create value. This is not an institution that does any work whatsoever. It's just shuffling claims, ownership claims from one hand to another through printing money, through debasing currency, however you want to call it. Um, that, I mean, that is a very bitter pill to swallow. And it's amazing to me how few people really know this history. Well, why, I mean, I think to some extent, how could you know it? Because no one's taught it, Mm. you know, unless, you know, unless you trip as I did recently and fall down the rabbit hole and you start reading stuff for yourself and then you read one thing and it leads you on to another thing. We're not, we're not given this information at, at school. Uh, uh, you know, you're you're not. I don't suppose American kids are taught about what happened over Christmas 1913. No, I don't suppose for one moment that they have any concept about uh, the the you know the creation of the of the Fed. I don't suppose they're reminded very often about the uh, FDR 1933 and the private ownership of gold. I don't suppose they're told about the gold standard in 1971. But, and likewise, here in the UK, you don't you don't hear about any of this stuff. You know, we we're not we're, we don't have any understanding, uh, you know, given to our kids about the common law. They might hear mention of Magna Carta, but they're what you most if you if they mention Magna Carta at all, it's simply to say it's out of date. It's been it's been uh, you know replaced by subsequent legislation and and people oh well you know Magna Carta it's just a funny old document in a museum case. Uh, move on, move on. So you know why? Why would why would anyone know this stuff? Because broadly speaking, and this is no you know this is not to say anything negative about anyone. If the, if if that information is not put in front of you, you know most people are just going about their busy lives, just trying to keep their heads above water. Why would they be going researching the history of the Federal Reserve? Why would they be going looking at the at the nature of that which is enshrined in Magna Carta? Right. It, it, it's been it's been buried. And, and people have been encouraged to look away, look the other way. Yeah, that's a great point. I, especially, man, it's such a pernicious thing, though, because as you described, people struggling to keep their head above water, largely, that struggle is largely being, uh, let's say, worsened or exacerbated by the existence of the central bank. Like the reason people are struggling to keep their head above water is because they live in a, a money monopoly that they're being stolen from all the time by inflation and taxation, et cetera. So, man, it, sometimes we get deep into these rabbit holes and I'm like, I'm, you just can't figure out which thing to solve first. <laughs> um, okay, you also talked about the this saga related to the Bank of England and the Bradbury Pound. 
which <laughs> yeah. I'd actually never heard of this before, but I did know that in times of strife, let's say whether it's economic downturn or times of war, one of the first things the central bank tends to do is suspend gold convertibility gold convertibility so that people mm-hmm. cannot exchange their promises for money in the form of currency for actual money, which is gold. Um, could you maybe just give us a, a high level overview of what that saga entailed and what the Bradbury pound was? Yeah. In 1914, uh, the, with war, the first world war was looming. Uh, it hadn't, it hadn't quite broken out but everyone knew it was about to happen it was days away and there was people got people always get nervous they get anxious in circumstances like that and they run for real wealth and people quite justifiably wanted to exchange their banknotes which in those days were big like maps big fold out bits of paper they wanted to exchange their notes for gold because, you know, it, well, in those days it had on it, you know, we promised to pay the bearer on demand right. the sum of. So if you, had a, if you had a one pound note or a five pound or a 10 pound note or whatever, you were entitled to walk into the bank and, ha- and redeem the, the relevant amount of gold sovereigns or, or whatever. But already by 1914, uh, the, the, the Bank of England was, had already been up to enough financial jiggery-pokery that they had already been quantitative easing there, there were more notes in circulation by a long way than than there was gold in the vaults of the bank of england to honor the promise and so there was a very real risk of a run on the bank and if if the if the banks had been had been wiped by a run of that nature um britain wouldn't have been able to fight the war at, at a stroke britain the, the british empire would have been would have been powerless to, to, to finance the fighting. And so the, the, the Bank of England came crying to the government for help. Uh, David Lloyd George, who's a legendary political figure, uh, he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he went into negotiations. They shut the banks. The banks went into the, uh, the August bank holiday. And the bank holiday was extended by an additional three days. The banks stayed shut for three, four days, and an act of par- a bill was passed through Parliament at top speed, which, uh, which created a Treasury note. So this wasn't, this wasn't being issued by the Bank of England. It was being issued by the Treasury, which is the government, which effectively meant it was the people's issue of a currency. And the, the first uh, issue of these notes were signed by the, the Secretary to the Treasury, who was uh, John Bradbury. And when they started circulating out in, in society, people started calling them Bradbury Pounds. This was the nickname. So this, this whole thing, if anybody wants to look it up, you look up Bradbury Pound and you'll, you'll see this story in, uh, in, in greater detail. But the the principle of these treasury notes was that Britain had a value. It had an, it had an innate worth. To some extent, it was down to the, the, the properties, the farmland, its fertility, gold, you know, mineral resources, coal under the ground. Uh, also, importantly, a value was placed on the potential of the people, their creativity, their inventiveness, uh, their hard work, 
all of that was taken into a calculation so that the these Bradbury pounds, these treasury notes, rather than being balanced by gold, they were balanced by the wealth of the nation in every sense. And amazingly, when the banks reopened and people were going in saying, I want my gold, they were persuaded, painlessly enough, to take these treasury notes instead because it was explained to them that they were guaranteed by the wealth of the nation. People were persuaded that these had inherent value. And the Bradbury pounds prevented the run on the bank and they saved the Bank of England. They, there's no other way to, ex, to express it. They saved the Bank of England. Now, the thinking goes, there are those ever since who have said, rather than being beholden to the private bankers and their criminally created fiat money with all its uh, drawbacks that we've just been discussing, at the moment, Britain, for example, has a notional value of three trillion pounds. No, 30 trillion pounds. So you could take, say, 10% of that, you could say three trillion pounds in treasury notes in a, in a reissue of whatever you wanted to call it, Bradbury pounds. And these, the, 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 these treasury notes are interest-free and debt-free. There's no interest on them. There's no debt accruing on them. So they're completely different from fiat money. And at the moment, Britain, any, any sovereign state could do it. Any, any, any nation state can issue treasury notes against the, 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 uh, the, the value of, the innate value of the nation. And you could break away from the stranglehold, if you wanted to, of the fiat currency. And you would, and because it's treasury notes, that, that money issue is in control of the people, potentially. I mean, obviously anything can be corrupted and can be misused, but potentially treasury notes created and issued in that way, interest-free and debt-free and set the people free from the machinations of the private bankers. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, a, it's a, an idea that sounds like it could work, but then to your point, the, the practical implementation of that is who's in charge. It's worth a conversation, you know. Yes, it, it, yes all caveats apply. You mm -hmm. know, anything that falls into the hands of human beings can be can be as can be corrupted to the extent that those individuals happen to be corrupt. Absolutely, but it's worth a conversation. It's an it's another it's another means. It's another way to break the people free from yes. the stranglehold that's upon them by the by the central bank and the bank for international settlement because it's got yeah. nothing to do with with fiat currency. Right. Yeah. It's a great idea overall and actually would i typically define corruption as the bending of a generally applicable rule or a public rule for private gain mm -hmm. and if that were if that were administered properly then that could be a viable alternative to the whole central banking complex but i'm always skeptical of putting a human in charge of anything really if it's if it's human governable then at some point you're going to get the wrong human governing it, and it's any chain apart. is only as strong as its weakest link. You know that's right. You know that you know if there's a it, and it only takes one bad apple to you know to rot the barrel. It, that's a fact. Yes, right. uh, but but we are we are human beings, and we broadly speaking we have to deal with one another. So yeah, there, there, there has to be an element of trust, or you or you can't do anything. And and there are ways to there are there are simply anything is better than the than the the private bank generated fiat currency that we have at the moment. Right. 
yes. anything else is, is worth a try. Yeah, you're getting you're speaking to some of the value proposition of Bitcoin here too, is that you're right. Trust is necessary for human beings to cooperate and produce the economic division of labor that makes us wealthy and productive and all that. Um, but we, I guess the trick is to lower the cost of establishing trust. That's sort of like what gold is. You know, you don't need to trust the individual that's paying you in gold. They're not making you a promise to money. They're just giving you actual money. And so when you can get out of this, uh, you know, seemingly infinite sequence of passing promises around and get, get people passing things that are, uh, accurate representations of the time and energy that went into them, right? That's ultimately what gold is that you get a more sustainable, uh, civilization. Let's talk a little bit about central bank digital currencies. Now you mentioned this earlier. Uh, I think you've described these as digital enslavement. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, Correct. This, this lines up really nicely with with my stance on central banking. As I wrote about this in a piece called "Masters and Slaves of Money," that I think it's essentially an institution of slavery. If you consider that someone, if someone's effective tax rate is 100, percent that means all the fruits of their labor are going to someone else. Right? That's a slave. Whereas if someone has an effective tax rate of 0%, they're keeping all the fruits of their labor. They are a sovereign, right? Um, obviously, inflation is taxation by another name. Uh, so anywhere you fall on that spectrum, whatever your effective tax rate is, you're basically enslaved to that extent by the central bank. Um, how are you thinking about central bank digital currencies? And what are you, what do you think are, viable ways to prevent their implementation worldwide because it sure seems like these projects are going along the, full speed ahead the thing the real the real fear you know at the moment there's a lot of you can you can read here in in the uk about um you know the the new prime minister rishi sunak you know having been an end he's a fan of central bank digital currencies and the, and the frameworks are already there government is has already tasked uh, the the Bank of England with with the creation of uh, a, a, a British he calls it the Britcoin. <laughs> There's nice, isn't it? Um, it sounds a bit too close. It's a bit bit of a, wow. a dangerous blurring of uh, of names there. But he, he calls it Britcoin, uh, and the the framework is already there. And the and the Bank of England, uh, as long ago as last year, were were seeking clarification from the government at the time. Uh, whether the, the 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 Bitcoin should be programmable. Now, that that's where you get into that territory where you know the, the government can can basically cut off the supply of money to an individual for whatever reason, just at the flick of a digital switch. Once once the once the cash is programmable in that way, and history shows that any government ever that that had the potential for some control, more control, or total control of a situation. Without exception, they've gone for total control. You know, if you give the government that option, that is the option they will take. And you know, and you know, you might say that as long as it's a benign government or a, or a government with whom you are in, you chime with, and with whom you are in accord, then you might be all right. But governments change. 
And if that apparatus is there for a malign administration, then that which you had thought would never be a danger to you overnight becomes a real and present danger. And the, the, the fact that we are sleepwalking uh, towards a situation in which every transaction that we make is, is tracked and known about by the state in real time is the, is the most frightening administrative idea I have ever heard of. And, and the fact that so many people are, are deaf to it, blind to it, or, or, or think that the convenience that's the top level of it outweighs the risk, I find disheartening to the point where I despair. Uh, but, you know, around the world, 100 countries are developing central bank digital currencies. You know, these things are coming and they are going to be among us in the next, I don't know, year, 18 months, if not sooner. Yes, uh, truly uh, alarming. And I guess another point here, the control, you know, we keep using this word control. We talked about property earlier. I think control and ownership are damn near the same thing. Like the ability to control an asset is the extent to which you own it. And um, I, I, man, it just seems like central banks are seeking more control. It's almost the same thing as like saying people want more assets, right? Central banks want to grow their balance sheet. I want someone to explain to me. I want to understand genuinely why a, a little sliver of people a minority of people want to have that kind of oversight of everybody else's business. I, I cannot I get my head around why you would want to have that power over your fellow human beings just by dint of being an elected politician, an elected representative. Why, what sequence of events, what thought process would bring you to believing that you were entitled to know about and furthermore have control over what the rest of the population were up to when it came to choices they were making about how they were going to live their lives. I, 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 I find it impossible even momentarily to inhabit in my imagination that kind of headspace, why those people want that kind of control. You know, I, it, you know it, draw, it, it brings to mind, you know, words like sociopathic and psychopathic you know, lack of empathy. Why, why, for the longest time, it has been apparent, you know, in terms of all this data gathering that has been the, the bread and butter of, of the online wealth, you know, the Zuckerbergs and the Peter Thiels and all the rest of them, it seems to be predicated on a disregard for other people's privacy. And yet, in many ways, these people are very private about their own affairs, but they're intent on disregarding the privacy of others and from a philosophical standpoint, I really genuinely want to understand what it is that motivates those people to want to operate in that way. Yeah, I have a hard time getting my head around it as well. And I just try to keep, rather than try and infer the motivations, I try to just look at the economic, the economics ultimately. And, you know, if, to the extent the state or the central bank can expand their dominion over others is really to increase the profitability of the business, right? You're, you can inflate more, you can tax more, you can, you have less 
what did we say earlier? The last thing a state wants is, you know, armed, independent thinking, uh, outspoken individuals. Those people are very expensive to tyrannize and extract wealth from via inflation, taxation, et cetera. Okay, well, so what do they want? They want the opposite of that. They want people that are highly legible, easily traceable, not talking back, going to work, doing what they're told. Like that is, that's your ideal customer, if you will, for a state. So I hope that by taking away that option over time, right, giving giving people recourse to money that's really hard to steal, like Bitcoin, and, and allowing them uh, the freedom of jurisdictional arbitrage. If you're not being treated well in one state, well, you can put 12 seed words in your brain and take your Bitcoin to another state, go to where you're treated best. That, that sort of resolves this, this oppressive dynamic that we see pop up again and again. Why, why, when, when we, you know, it's been well, it's been well demonstrated that, um, you know, uh, state, a state can shut down the internet. You know, it's been done. You know, China has done it. You know, other other states, rogue states, have done it. You know, they've they've deactivated internet for a period of time. What happens to people, Bitcoiners, who who find themselves in such a in such a state, in such a nation state that decides to to take control of and deactivate? Now, they're, I know they're not. I know they're not taking control of Bitcoin at that point. But how do people continue to access? and do the peer-to-peer transactions and all the rest of the good things that Bitcoin promises if they find themselves you know, in, a, in a territory where the state has taken control of the internet? Yeah, this is an excellent question. Um, I actually think this is the operative question. If you want to understand how to destroy Bitcoin, the analogous question you have to ask is, how would one turn off the internet everywhere forever? Now there's there are ways to do that perhaps, but they would they entail pretty significant global cataclysm as far as I can tell. So it's kind of a black swan ish type but, event. But, but states working in concert, one world if you like. Yeah. Would there not be an opportunity to to choreograph and coordinate control of the internet at a level that would make it very difficult for Bitcoiners? In the same way that it would be suddenly impossible for people to get their messages out on social media, yeah. would people wanting to transact or indeed just access Bitcoin unless they had it on some thumb drive ledger or whatever, would they, would are there not opportunities whereby a, a one world or, or 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 states acting in concert could really get in the way of Bitcoin? Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. Um, in terms of just moving the Bitcoin out of from one state to another, you actually don't need internet. You don't need anything to do that. You just need custody of the private key, whether that's on a piece of paper, on a hard drive, in your mind, whatever it may be. So getting Bitcoin out of a jurisdiction is not dependent on the on an operating internet. So if someone shuts down the internet in the US, it doesn't mean I can't get my Bitcoin out of the US. I literally just leave. Um, I have my keys stored offline, so that's no problem. Um, as long as all your wealth isn't in Bitcoin, <laughs> well, as long as only, you've got some sort of operating capital to get you to point B where you can yes, it does back in again and access your, activate your Bitcoin. With it your does presume basket. that you have Bitcoin. That's a, that's a necessary first step. 
uh, would be much harder to get Bitcoin after they shut down the internet. That's for you sure. Know, if, if all your wealth was in Bitcoin, how would you leave the States if you couldn't access your Bitcoin until you got out of the States? Well, you can keep Bitcoin in a lot of different places. And I wouldn't advocate, I mean, I don't advocate anything. As I mean, I'm aware, as... of asking, I'm aware of asking childish questions, but... No, it's not a childish question at all. This is a very, very good question. Um, and it's this is the type of adversarial thinking that I that makes me very confident in Bitcoin and Bitcoiners overall, because we we or others in the community have thought through a lot of these things and written about it extensively. Mm -hmm. So you could you can store Bitcoin in a lot of different places, right? So if you have some small amount of Bitcoin in a hot wallet on your phone, uh, you don't need the internet for that either. You just need to be able to scan a QR code and then you can initiate a Bitcoin transaction over anything people do it over ham radios you do it over cell towers you can do it over the internet wow really yeah um now so let's just say that there's a lot of optionality for people to leave states with bitcoin that does presume they have bitcoin though um on the notion of could nation states just act in a concerted fashion to globally suppress the internet or suppress bitcoin this is actually this is such a Great question. And this is what Bitcoin solved. I don't know if you've heard of this, the Byzantine generals problem. So this was a long, unsolved computer science problem. And basically, I won't give you the anecdote for where it got the name, but let's just say the question is, how do you propagate a message through a network of antagonistic actors, like actors that can't trust one another? and make it such that the message comes out the other side intact, right? And that's what Bitcoin is, really. It's just a solution to the Byzantine generals problem. So we can propagate a message truthfully, and it doesn't matter. You don't need to trust anyone. I don't need to trust these individual actors. You just need to trust that they operate in their own self-interest. So it's kind of this brilliant like confluence of incentives in that way. Um, so I don't... That's a weird paradoxical question to to ask it's like okay how would nation states trust one another because every nation state that joins this you know anti-bitcoin union or whatever you want to call it they increase the incentives for other nation states to defect and just be the one state that's friendly to it and mm. then you get all that wealth and all that capital and all that talent drawn into your country that you can then you know tax or or whatever um tax I don't want to use the word tax. You could work with those entrepreneurs in your state. Um, so there's that. It's a weird thing. It's like, okay, for nation states to stop Bitcoin, they would need to solve the Byzantine generals problem. Yet the only solution to the Byzantine generals problem is Bitcoin. Okay. So that's that's a weird one to think about for a long time. <laughs> and then on the uh, the last piece with you know, China's most recently, they've banned Bitcoin many, many times, many different ways. And most recently, they banned Bitcoin mining in China. Uh, that was over a year ago. And today, about 20% of the global hash rate is still done in China. So if the biggest, nastiest, wealthiest, most authoritarian regime in human history can't ban Bitcoin mining effectively, then I think that bodes pretty well for Bitcoin mining in every other jurisdiction in the world. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's back to the incentives versus laws thing. It's just so much easier to let some of this business transpire in your country and tax it or be a part of it 
than it is to try and actively enforce a ban on this global competition mm -hmm. to solve a math problem every 10 minutes, right? It's really hard, really hard to ban that. Um, and when they do ban it, you know, these things, Bitcoin miners are just little boxes. So they get packed in a box and shipped somewhere else and plugged back in. And so the, the network's <laughs> constantly adapting to the, the uh -huh. state's attempt to whack a mole kind of thing. It's just constantly moving around enforcement attempts. Um, so yeah, there's all that. I, I just want to mention the Kissinger quote because you brought this up in your, your monologue as well that uh, Henry Kissinger infamously, infamously said, who controls the food supply, supply. controls, the, controls people. the people. Who controls, who controls the, energy? the energy can control whole continents. Yeah. Who controls money can control the world. Bam. And, and we're seeing we're seeing all of that at the moment, which is which is I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I appreciate and I have come to the conclusion now that the freedom to transaction is the number one freedom. Uh, yes. However, you know, we're seeing at the moment food supply is is being interrupted. You know, the COP27, you know, the, the UN climate conference this year in Egypt is all about um, food, agriculture, you know, and there are there are moves afoot to cut agriculture on the planet by 50 percent. In a time of food insecurity, let's say there's food insecurity, um, energy. The I cannot begin to you know the the, the wholesale price of, of natural gas is falling through the floor in Europe, and yet energy acquisition of energy in Europe remains you know higher than it's ever been. You know, that's I don't know how you square that that circle. Um, yeah, so we're we're seeing. We're seeing energy being controlled, and now we're seeing moves afoot to control money. You know, so that 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 dystopian uh, potential that, that's crystallised there in that Kissinger quote is all coming to pass. Mm. You know, money's money's part of it, but it's it's only a part of it. You know, and, and so all three, you know, the Trinity are all in play at the moment. Food. They're seeking to control food uh, creation and food distribution by taking control of farmers and farmland. There, there, something very unsatisfactory is happening with energy because of Agenda 2030 and the rest, where the US is, has cut itself away from its domestic energy potential. The UK has long since cut itself away from its domestic energy potential. Uh, and now the, the central bank, the advent of central bank digital currencies you know, mean that there's uh, something going on with money. And it, it does feel like the one entity ha is on the brink of taking control of all three. Food, energy and money are, are all going to be under someone's centralised control. And, and that's simply a situation that the, any freedom-loving population must not and cannot tolerate. Right. Yeah. How do we... How do we fight back? I mean, well, it's you're right. The 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 ethos of of Bitcoin is correct. That you know, Bitcoin is the tool, but the the ethos behind it is one hundred percent correct because the freedom to transact is 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 freedom, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the Bitcoiners, with their faith in Bitcoin, you know, believe that Bitcoin is the way. But but whether it is or not. Uh, we have to secure the freedom to transact. 
If it's Bitcoin, great. But as I say, the, the intent is there in the Bitcoin community and, and, the, and the crypto community to be free of that centralized state control of money. So there's a lot of smart people out there. I'd like to think, you know, some of the smartest of people are, are fighting that battle. And, you know, that, that that freedom to transact will be preserved. That, that, is the, that is the basis of how we fight back. If people can continue to privately and anonymously transact with one another, then there's, there will always be hope as long as that freedom persists. You can get around the energy. You can get around the food. You can get around the freedom of speech. But all of it, all of it rests foursquare on the freedom to transact. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense because it is the the free market economy that produces all this wealth and goodness. So if you have the freedom to transact uncoerced, then you can create more food, create more energy, you know, create communication technologies for speech or whatever. But if you lose the ability to transact, it's sort of you know, rug pulls why the whole thing. I, I, you know, I despair a lot of the time, but the, my hope. Uh, that uh, is is sustained by my absolute certainty that what is being proposed is anti-human. It's this has been smaller, uh, more federalized versions of this have been attempted in the past. There have always been those who have sought totalitarian control. There have always been would-be authoritarians, all the way back to. Babylon, you know, it's it, it, it's 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 there in the system, but it never works because that kind of top-down authority, it's 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 anathema to the species. It's not what the highest functioning those those human beings with the most potential will not put up with authoritarianism. Right. And whether it's whether it's the Roman Empire or or the or the Soviet Union or whatever, these these things break because they are anti-human. And and there's eight billion people on the planet. And at no point are you going to get a majority or are, are the majority of people going to be happy with totalitarian control. They might feel under the cosh and, and they might struggle to think of a way out of it, but they won't be happy with it. And for that reason, the authoritarians will always trip themselves up. I have absolute faith in that. And I think that because of the sheer, I mean, people say, you know, too big to fail. On the contrary, when things get so big, they always fail. Yes. And this will fail. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it will fail. And yeah. the human spirit will reassert itself. And there's something very important about there's ironically, given the, the technological nature of it, there is nonetheless something of the human spirit that's manifest in the objectives of Bitcoin. Mm. It's a manifestation of the human determination to be free. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I brilliantly said, and I think many Bitcoiners would agree that this is this Bitcoin project is just an extension, right? We had the Magna Carta, we had the US Constitution. There's been many constitutional documents uh, and efforts by 
many people across time to try and get us to a world of more mutual freedom and reciprocal respect and all of these things. And Bitcoin is just a another chapter in that story, I suppose. Um, hopefully a very effective one. Like it seems, it's very easy, maybe not very easy. It's much easier to ignore the Bill of Rights over time, but it's very difficult to ignore incentives. And Bitcoin has much more of an incentive component built into it than than these constitutional documents do. Um, okay, I want to, we'll wrap up here, we're almost done. I. So you said you concluded one of your recent monologues by saying, take back control of money, it's creation, value, and flow. And in so doing, we can regain control of the world. I want to ask, is, how can we do that? Any, like, I obviously, like cards on the table, not that you'd be surprised. I don't see, I've looked and looked and looked. I cannot find an alternative solution other than Bitcoin. Um, so when you say that, what do you mean and what do you have in mind for people to take back control over money? My, my solution is, is always, I suppose it's not only, but at heart, my solution is analog rather than digital. Now that's not to decry in any way the the digital and Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, but for me, the solution is, is as big and also is as big and difficult, but also as small and simple all at the same time as people realizing the power that they have as informed uh, free thinking individuals. And when enough informed and free thinking individuals come together, then you know, you have that bundle of sticks strength. You know, you can snap a single twig, but you can't break a hundred sticks bound together tightly. And so it's all about people to, to use the, the overused, cliched, hackneyed expression of the moment, but it's, it's the only one that really matters is to waken people up. Like me, I thought for too long that the institutions and the state had my best interests at heart. And I've realized late in the day that they don't. I don't know if they never did, but the institutions and the state now do not have my or my family's interests at heart. And once you realize that, it's, it's, it's briefly frightening, but it also is enlivening and, and rejuvenating in a sense, because you're, you're, you're made to confront your own, the necessity of taking responsibility for your own life. And if, if enough people realize that the, the institutions of state, and in particular, the, the behavior of, of the bankers, the private banks, those corrupt and criminal institutions are working against us, as, as soon as people, it's like sleeping beauty, you know, you'll just awaken from your slumber and a world of opportunity and potential will be there. And collectively, people might, enough of those people might make Bitcoin the solution. But the, whether it's Bitcoin, as I've said before, whether it's Bitcoin, that might be the solution. But what the, the answer to your question, the way we get out of this is enough people knowing that the problem is solvable. 
too many people saying, ah, oh, no, it's, 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 too, it's too late, it's too big, it's too difficult, they've got too much power. That's an illusion. That's the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, illusion. We, the sovereign people, acting together in pursuit of happiness, in pursuit of property, we instantly overcome whatever dictatorial, authoritarian, totalitarian notions that a handful of individuals might have. It's just about getting enough people to realize some very simple stuff. Therein lies the solution. Brilliantly said. Uh, all of the political power that those in power have is premised on our It's an illusion. Our it's an illusion. Right? Yes. It's an illusion. The minute you, the, it's it's the minute you it, we're all we're these people are just characters on the stage, and we are the audience. And when you go to the theatre or you go to the cinema to watch a film or to watch a production, part of you knows it's all just make-believe. You know, part of you knows that the, that the, the illusion of the moving image is just a, an optical trick. But you go along with it because you're enjoying it. But at any moment, if the audience just stands up and says, this is make-believe, right. then the spell's broken. Yeah. And the actors just have to walk off the stage and the audience yeah. just walks out onto the street because <laughs> the spell's broken. Yeah. You know, if, if you all stand up and go, this is bollocks, this is just pretend, I'm not interested, yeah. then all of their power just evaporates in that instant and they are revealed for what they are, which is just characters playing a part, mouthing other people's lines. That's such a good point, yeah. Power to the people. As soon as we reclaim it, it is ours. It's always that. It's always this yeah. is why. This mm -hmm. is this is why it goes back to Magna Carta. That whatever that line was about the jury that I've that I lost my train of thought. It it all goes back to the people. What they try to make everyone forget all the time is that the people govern themselves, right? In a free society, and if eight billion people know that they govern themselves, then ten thousand people at the top you know, trying to live out their dictatorial fantasies. They are just blown away, just like autumn leaves. Yes. Yeah, it's so, so well said. I um, Just going back to one thing you said where you thought for a long time that institutions in the state had your best interest at heart. Uh, this is such a key point too, that it's very easy to fall into that fantasy but the more practical reality is there no institution or state has a heart, right? These are, no, these are comprised of individuals. Yeah. And it's ultimately the self-interest of those individuals governing those institutions that govern. Um, <laughs> and so it's, you know, that, that at heart, we have to remember only individuals have the heart. Ultimately it's that line between good and evil is cutting down, cutting through the middle of all of our hearts. Yeah. Um, and that's just, I think, a more useful way to look out onto the world. Um, it might be a little more scary, but it's more real. Yeah. You have to take, we all have to take responsibility for ourselves and for each other. You know, you said earlier that, I mean, I was, I was talking about Francis Hutchison and the, you know, the pursuit of happiness by, you know, by putting all the effort in for other people. And then you correctly offered up the, the, the importance of also uh, striving in, for your own interest at the same t at the same time, right? And that because it, 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 it's you know we we've been encouraged to to live in kind of fur lined ruts 
you know, it, it's comfortable and, it, and it's been warm, but it's a rut. And it, it, if people just stand up and sort of face the cold for a while and take responsibility for themselves, first of all, you're quite right, but then for the other people in their immediate vicinity, then that is always the answer. That is always the answer. But it's not about, it's not about waiting for help. The cavalry are not coming. You, you, have to, you have to stand up and do it for yourself. And if, if, if everyone just stands up and picks up enough of the burden and, and, and takes it, then that collectively is the solution for it. Because then those illusory figures like the state or the institutions of state or whatever, we don't need them anymore. They just, they just fade away because we will have taken responsibility for ourselves and each other. They're powerless at that point. Mm. They're just empty clothes. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Emperor has no clothes. Um, amen to that. I think this is probably a great place to put a button on it. Neil, thank you so much. This is a really fun conversation. Uh, great. Could, could you let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Uh, yeah, um, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, if you go into YouTube, the Neil Oliver channel is there. Uh, I have a presence on Instagram. I have a patreon.com site. If you go into patreon.com and, and look for me by name, you'll find me there. Uh, I've got 10 or 11 books that are available in all good bookshops, um, or you'll find them online. And I'm on GB News, uh, which is a television channel in the UK, six o'clock till eight o'clock every Saturday night. And at some point in the near future, Robert, you can be on there. You can be my guest. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I'd be, and we'll be talk, happy and to. We'll, we'll talk more about things financial and things philosophical. I would enjoy that. I would really like that. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Neil, thanks again. Brilliant. Thank you.